Well, amen, amen, wonderful. Well, we are so glad you are here. We're so glad you're here, and we're glad to be here with you. Hey, listen, I should have done this a long time ago, but I didn't, so I gave you, I just copied. If you, do, if you want a copy of this, there are two pieces of paper. I'll have Jan or maybe Xander can pass them. If you want to raise your hand up, uh, it's from my notebook. It's my list of the kings. So I don't do things in order, as you know, if you watch the video. I kind of do roundabout stuff, so I'm going to kind of explain it to you. If you want one, raise your hand. If you don't want one, that's okay, too. And uh, uh, I will explain it to you. Here's another thing. I don't want to embarrass them, but I want you to say hi to them after the service. We have a sweet new family here. Uh, from, can you believe, the longest commute in the history of Calvary Chapel, South Pittsburgh, straight from Wales, uh, our friends the Buftons, who have moved to Pittsburgh two days before, uh, or three or so days before the lockdown. And uh, so after the service, will you please introduce yourself to the Buftons there, sweet family. Uh, if you're in high school or below, there's some young people back there, so make sure you introduce yourselves to them. And uh, uh, we're glad to have them as well. So do me a favor and turn with me uh, to 2 Kings 22. It's almost too hard to believe that the Lord directed us here on the night in which we start easing back into in-person services. If you... See what I passed out here? I passed out the inside of the cover of my book. The reason I passed you the inside, the one that says schedule on it, is because up in the upper right-hand corner are four dates you need to know. If you don't know these dates, you'll be lost in the Old Testament. But if you know these dates, it'll help you. That's 931 B.C. when the kingdom was divided. Jeroboam and Rehoboam. Solomon dies. The kingdom's divided. The ten tribes go to the north. Two tribes go to the south. 722 B.C. is the Assyrian captivity. The Assyrian captivity. We studied that in 2 Kings 17. And now we're in 22. 2 Kings uh, 17. That, hey folks, just so you know, the Assyrian captivity is the backdrop to the book of Isaiah. Okay? That's important. Even though Isaiah prophesies a lot to the southern kingdom, it's happening during the time of the Assyrian invasion and pulling them out. Does that make sense? Okay, 586 B.C., we're going to see that tonight, the Babylonian captivity. I seriously have no idea how you would uh, understand the Old Testament if you didn't know the date, 586 B.C., The Babylonians, in about three or four waves, take out the southern kingdom of Judah. And it culminates in 586 B.C. We'll see it tonight. And then 536 B.C., remnant returns. Then the other piece of paper I gave you is my list of the kings. I know you might all have your list of the kings. I'm just giving you what I have. Everything on here makes sense to me, except for I can't figure out Look down to the bottom right where it says destruction of Jerusalem. I have no idea why I wrote 9th AV, Babylonian captivity. If anybody can decipher my notes, uh, free milkshakes at parodies and Rob's. (laughs) But anyway, so that will hopefully help you. We now turn uh, to uh, 2 Kings 22. 2 Kings 22, let me pray one more time. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, raise your hand and we'll get you a Bible. You're going to want to read this. If you have it on your phone, that's fine too. You're going to want to read this. But anyway, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this evening. We need your help, Lord. Help us with, by your Spirit to tell us what the text says. And then, Lord, show us what it means for us and how we can worship you and bless you. Knit these things, would you please, Lord, to our very being so that we could go out tonight and love and the rest of the week and love a hurting and dark world. In Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. Now, there never really uh, uh, can be anything like uh, <laughs> what it was like in Israel and Judah. It was dark. Of course, we live in a dark world, don't we? Uh, but it, it was very dark. In the last couple chapters, we see that, and uh, we've seen that. And now, uh, out of the darkness springs a young boy, a young man. Who in here is eight-year-old or younger? Who's eight years old or younger? Raise your hand. Good man. We got one guy in here, eight years old or younger. And guess what? This eight-year-old, Josiah, he becomes the king of Judah. The king of Judah at eight years old. And so I just want to encourage a lot of the young people who are sitting here right now. I want to encourage you. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 4.12, as Paul writes to Timothy, let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word. We're going to study the life of an eight-year-old who's an example to us all this time, you know, hence in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. It doesn't matter how young or old you are when the Lord gets a hold of your heart. And here in the midst of darkness, remember, Judah had started even, uh, or had spiraled to the point where they had even started to sacrifice their children. Let that sink in just like the northern kingdom had. Oh, by the way, if that gets too cold for you, Xander, you can knock it down the fan. Some of these folks might be cold, but anyway. So just raise your hand and Xander will do that. <laughs> okay. So here you are and you have Josiah, an eight-year-old, verse one, and he becomes king and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name, Jedidiah, daughter of Adiah of Bozkath. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in all the ways of his father David. See, David wasn't his father biologically, but David was his father because he came from that line, and what that means is that he walked like David walked. Not that he wasn't a sinner, he was and is, you know, David was a sinner, but he uh, had a close and intimate relationship. In fact, when you get the rest of the story in 2 Chronicles, remember, 2 Chronicles is moving right along with 2 Kings. When you get uh, the rest of the story, it says when he was about 16 years old, it actually says in the Chronicles that he began to seek the Lord. And the phrase in the Hebrew is, he began to really seek the Lord, like pour out. It was everything to him to, to seek the Lord. And after that, he began to make reforms in Judah. Look at this. Oh, by the way, it says he didn't turn aside to the right hand or the left. On Sundays, what have we been preaching? And I'm going to tell you something, folks. If this two months or whatever, two and a half months, whatever, has done nothing else. I hope it's done this for you. Moved you closer to being single-minded. What the Lord has done here is he's stripped away lots of things. Come on, folks. You got to be sick of Netflix by now. I mean, there are no sports on. Trust me, I've looked. Cornhole. I can't watch cornhole. On TV. There's rerun. There's nothing to watch. The things that you thought were so important, right, have been stripped away from us. And of course, we've been in this lockdown that we don't like. But remember, folks, we've been in for two months. The Israelites were in the wilderness for how many years? How many did you say? Oh, yes, that's right. That a boy. And what was the sin that God really, really hated in the wilderness of them? They're complaining. They were complaining because they were getting fed. Are you kidding me? Every day and every night, right? Or every night, it fell. And they complained about it, and they complained. And now we get to the point where that's been stripped away. And this one, this young guy, young boy, 
He doesn't turn from the right or to the right or the left. He's single-minded in his pursuit of doing what's right in the eyes of the Lord. And so he finds these things out in verse 3. It comes to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Saphan, the scribe. Someday we're going to do a sermon on this man. You'll be blown away to find out how he's woven through the Bible, but that's for another day. The son of Azalea, the son of Meshulam, to the house of the Lord, saying, go up to Hilkiah, the high priest. Guess whose dad he was? Yell it if you know it. He was the dad of Jeremiah. And that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people, and let them deliver it in the hand of those doing the work who are overseers in the house of the Lord. Let them give it to those who are in the house of the Lord doing the work. Now, you're going to find something out here in the next couple chapters. If you don't remember this, you're going to find out that Judah had spiraled out of control in evil. And Josiah here is going to make reforms, but I want you to see during today's teaching the power of one person. There's a very famous uh, pastor and missionary. I even think he was Welsh, but I'll look it up when I get back. And they, he was so famous that every place that he preached, revival broke out. And they asked him, what's the key to revival? Tell us the key to revival. And he said, here's the key to revival. Go home, get down on your knees, make a circle around yourself, and pray for the one inside the circle. Revival starts with us. Not not pointing the fingers like, oh, you should do what I'm doing. You should do what I'm doing. What is the Lord saying to me? And here, look at this, Josiah is an eight-year-old boy, seeks the Lord at 16. In the 18th year of his reign, so that makes him 26, I think. I'm not very good at math, but I think so. Here are the elements of revival. God spells it out. And I think we're here on a Wednesday. It's no coincidence that we're studying Josiah 22, or 2 Kings 22, the, the, the reign of Josiah, because what do we pray every Sunday night right here together? We pray for revival, and we look for it outwardly, but I'm wondering if it should start inwardly for each one of us. What if we really got serious about sin and the sin in our life and stopped calling it a bad temper? It's sin. Come on, I'm German or Irish or whatever. No, 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 it's sin. What if we got serious? And here, look at this. I'm going to hopefully point out some here of the, of the elements of revival. Here it comes. Verse 5. And let them deliver, I read, into the hand of those doing the work who are the overseers in the house of the Lord. He did what? He, if you follow this along, he was to repair the damages of the house. Who and what is the temple of God now? You are. I am. We are. We're the temple of God now. We're to repair the breaches in the temple of God. In fact, last Sunday we talked about us being living stones fit together, built up to a spiritual house. Do you remember that? We, we are the temple of God. We're to repair the damages in our house. What, what, what are some of the breaches that can happen in our house? What are some of the breaches? Well, here's some of the things. We let bitterness take root in our heart. And guess what happens? It gets a foothold in there, and then it starts to chip away at our house. And before long, we're starting to hold grudges, and we have people that we've hurt, and maybe the Lord has said to you in the past, you know, you really should go and ask for forgiveness from that person. And you've said, well, I don't know. I mean, that person doesn't even know or think about me. Why would I go? But the Lord just keeps saying it to you, or, or whatever. Or maybe there's something else in your life that the Lord's been talking to you about, and you've been putting it off, or I've been putting it off. And what I think is ha- uh, uh, can happen is that our house can get chipped away at. 
And there can be breaches or damages in it, and the Lord's telling us to shore that up. Whatever it is, I don't know. Maybe there's a person you've held a grudge against. Or maybe there's some bitterness you've held somewhere or somehow, and the Lord wants you to deal with it. Or you've been hurt some way. There's a breach in your house. Deal with that. Whatever the Lord's been talking to you about, get carpenter, you know, in a sense, the carpenters and the builders and the masons, they get the lumber. And then verse 7, however, there be no accounting made with them of the money delivered into their hand because they deal faithfully. And if you study 2 Kings, that actually happened with the prior king. I think it was King Joash. He hired people he trusted, or he put people in charge he trusted. That's interesting. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Then Hilkiah, the high priest, said to this Saphon, the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. Just think about that, folks. The Word of God, look at this. The Word of God was lost in the house of God. The Word of God was lost in the house of God, folks. It sounds like America. We give people 10-minute sermons, pat them on the head, send them out back to play at the rock wall. We have people that come to churches in America and they, all they want to know about are kids' ministries, or, uh, th- which are wonderful. Kids' ministries should be a part of it. But, or, or, or the fun things that you do. What kind of uh, social gatherings do you have? And that's, there is a part for all of that. Of course there's a part for that. But see, our job is to feed on the Word ourselves and grow you in it. First and foremost. Why? Because it's the greatest and safest and healthiest place to be. It's where you find the grace of God. It's where God is unveiled to you. It's where you have an appreciation and learn who God is. You understand who, is, who He is and His attributes through His Word. Salvation is there, of course. Growth is there. Reproof is there. It's powerful. It's active. It's alive. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy, talk about it with our children all the time. Why do you think he says that? Because Isaiah 55 says, it goes out like the rain or the snow and does its work and it never comes back void. It's powerful. So yes, it is fun to have fun with the kids and do stuff with them. Yes, we should have fun. But all the time we should be feeding them and feeding each other the word of God. That is revival. We repair the damages, we find the book of the law, and we actually, it says here in a little bit, we read it. Thank goodness you're doing, in order, the two-year Bible plan. No, I'm not kidding around, though, or I kind of am kidding around, but I ain't, I'm not kidding around because you people, we are reading the Bible like we never have before. I'm thanking God in that way for this pandemic. I'm not thanking God for the tough stuff that's happening to us as families or uh, unemployment or whatever in the sense that, you know, I, I want you to have employment and, and all those things. But, but man, one thing that this dri- has driven us to is we have time for the Word of God. Nobody can use that excuse now. Well, he found the book of the law, and he gave the book to Saphon, and he read it. So Saphon the scribe went to the king, bringing the king word, saying, Your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and delivered it into the hand of those who do the work, who oversee the house. Then Saphon the scribe showed the king, saying, Hilkah the priest has given me a book. Isn't that funny? Giving me a book. Does he even know what book? And Saphon read it before the king, and it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law. Now, most people and most commentators believe that this is the first five books of the Bible, and yet what they believe he, they, he read and understood and concentrated on was the book of Deuteronomy. Why Deuteronomy? Because chapters 4 through 13 would convict him, would show him the evils that the nation had done, Deuteronomy 4.13. 14 through 18 of Deuteronomy would really bother him because of the things that the nation hadn't done. And if you read chapters 27 through 30, it details that covenant 
indicating what God would do if the nation didn't repent. It showed them their future if they followed the words of the law or if they didn't follow the words of the law. And look at this. What is there, uh, 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 what's another element for revival? Look at this. This is, this is real repentance. This isn't uh, being sorry about something because you got caught, like politicians. No, this is real repentance. When God shows you his word and you recognize you have sinned against God, and you, here, he tears his clothes. He's in mourning. That's saying deep conviction of sin. And he feels a deep conviction of sin probably for himself, but also for his country. Then he commanded in verse 12, Hilkiah, Ahikam, however you say it, Agbor, Shaphan, the scribe, Isaiah, a servant of the king, and saying, look at this, next thing. Go inquire of the Lord for me. (laughs) Go inquire of the Lord for me. And for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that was written concerning us. Especially, remember this, evil Manasseh? Remember him from a couple weeks ago? Well, Hilkiah the priest Ahikam, Akbor, these, these folks, listen, they went to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, right? Wrong. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, these are the prophets of the day. These are the guys. Guess who he goes to? He goes to the prophetess. How, how, why doesn't this one get props in the Bible, man? Huldah, the prophetess. The wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, he was the keeper of the wardrobe. She dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they spoke with her. And she said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me. That's fascinating. You ever thought about this? The man who sent you to me is the king, Josiah. So he says, tell him this, behold, I'll bring calamity on this place and on its inhabitants, all the word of the book, which the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me. Now we figured out, we start to figure out again and uh, acquaint ourselves with what they, uh, what they were doing, what their society looked like. It's going to sound really familiar because we live in this society. They have forsaken me. Oh, man. Help us, Lord, here. And they've burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. But look at this. But as for the king of Judah, guess what? It's the same person. In one sense, she says, I'm talking to you as a man. In another sense, I'm talking to you as the king who sent you to inquire of the Lord in this manner, speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which you have heard. And he says to Josiah, look, she says to Josiah through the Lord, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse, and you tore your clothes and wept before me. I have heard you. Are you catching repentance And the Lord, repentance and the Lord meet. He, he, he gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. Oh, man, do we need humility. And his heart was tender, right? And he heard you, says the Lord. Verse 20, surely, therefore, I'm going to gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place. So they brought back word to the king. Now that's interesting because he's going to die in battle. So was the prophetess wrong? No, of course not. She's talking about the Babylonian exile. Get it? Okay, now look. Verse, or chapter 23. The king sent them to gather all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. Oh, by the way, here's another element for revival, I think. Did you notice how many people had responsibility in this one chapter in Josiah's kingdom? Josiah didn't run the show. (laughs) 
he empowered people to do their ministries. This would be a great thing for you if you would go back and see all the different people who had a role in the kingdom of Josiah. He didn't just hold it close to the vest, everything, the power or the rule and the reign. He empowered people in the kingdom to do their ministries. Do I even have to expand on that or expound on that? That's what the job of the pastoral leadership staff is. Not to sit up here and make every decision and move and be the boss. No, we're, the under, we're shepherds who, and chief servants who are finding ways by the word to, to seek you out and to see what kind of ministry the Lord is raising you up to and then letting you go with that ministry so that you'll be a participant in the part of the body of Christ. You see it? God bless you. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? Let's be a, a uh, church that when the Lord's calling us to, when the Lord's calling us to step up into ministry, not in some weird way where you just take over, but you, you, you grow into that ministry with the prayer and the help of the staff. You get it? We're all part of the body. I think that's another element to all of this that's happening for Josiah. Well, if you keep going, the king sent them, verse 1, chapter 23, to gather all the elders. You guys are so quiet. Maybe it's because we're on Facebook or something. I don't know. But anyway, or you're out of practice. That's it. You're out of practice. I see. Now, the king sent them to gather the elders of Judah and Jerusalem to him. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and with him all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The priests, look, all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests, the prophets, the people. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant. All the words of the book of the covenant. In Joshua 8, verse 30, there was a public reading. 500 years later... In 2 Chronicles 17.7, there was another public reading. And then three or 200 years after Jehoshaphat, Josiah makes a public reading, despite the fact that they were required to read through the book of the law during some of their festivals. You understand what I'm saying here? They, they were foregoing the reading of the law as a nation. Oh, man. You kidding me? That's another thing. They read all the words of the book of the covenant, not just the ones they liked. I mean, they came to a study on Wednesday night to listen to Second Kings. That's a joke. Okay, not a very good one. Which had been found in the house of the Lord. Okay, then the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord. He made a covenant. You see, the Bible, the gospel, the gospel always demands a response. I mean, you don't have to respond. God's not going to force you to respond. But just as we see in the sacrifices... In order to find real love, there must be a response to what God has done. I always say this, right? I mean, it would be great if, you know, I fell in love with Jan. I just fell in love. I'm, you know, star-crossed and can't see, can't go to work, can't do anything. And boy, I'm in love and it's so wonderful. And then I say... And now, will you marry me? And she just looks up and looks away and doesn't say anything back. There's no real joy or love there. It's, there's response that happens. And when that happens, we come together and there's love and joy, right? And it's the same thing with the gospel. The gospel, the word of God demands a response. You don't have to respond, but in order to capitalize or reap the benefits, however you want to say it, there must be a response. And the king stood there and made a covenant. They did respond. They made a covenant before the Lord to keep his commandments and his testimonies. By the way, what's our response to the grace of God? We just received the free gift. But see, the point is, 
a lot of people don't receive it or won't receive it. Well, here they make another covenant and they say, look, look what he says. I want you to catch this. This is powerful, man, for revival. You see, in revival, what we tend to do is we say, man, I wish you, uh, those people down the street, I, I hope they get their act together and uh, Lord, you can work with them. Yes, Lord. Oh, Lord, and those people over there that don't worship like me, I pray that they worship like me and look like us and do the same stuff as we do. Fix them, Lord. But I want you to see right here, when he made a covenant on behalf of the nation and to keep his commandments and testimonies, listen to this, he did it, look at this, Josiah did it with all his heart. And he did it with all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book. In other words, he said, Lord, it must start with me. Oh, man, in these times, where must it start? We might be on the TV at 4 o'clock or noon or whatever, pointing the finger at those people or those people or watching this channel or that channel. We're missing the whole thing. It's right here. You watch Free Burma Rangers? Anybody watch Free Burma Rangers? The guy said, what's the key to ministry? They asked him after uh, all these years of uh, fighting in the jungles and doing all that set things. He said, I think the whole key to ministry is not so much what's out there, but it's what lies within. And uh, can I find people who need loved and love them? That was this brave warrior, army guy saying this. It's within. Well, he does with all his heart, with all his soul. And they took a stand for the covenant, all the people. And the king commanded Hilkai, the high priest, the priest of the second order, to bring out of the temple, watch, we're going to go fast now. Get all of the articles that were made for Baal, for Asherah. Do you understand that inside the temple were uh, relics of Baal and Asherah, pagan gods, fertility gods, etc. And he burns them in the fields. Kidron carries their ashes to Bethel. Why would he carry their ashes to Bethel? Because that's where they first set up at the beginning of the divided kingdom, one of the camps with the golden calf. Remember that? So there he removed the idolatrous priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained. He removes the priests. On the high, uh, uh, that when they were burning uh, incense on the high places, and those who burned incense to Baal. And then look down in verse 6. He brought out wooden image from the house of the Lord to the brook Kidron, burned it there, and ground it to ash it, and threw its ashes on the graves of the common people. <laughs> Why was he doing that? He was turning these idols into graveyards, like, because these people were reticent. They wouldn't go, go around dead people or dead animals. They'd be unclean. In other words, he was making sure they'd never go back to it ever again. You get that? That's what he was doing. He wasn't just like saying, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, I, I know. I, I look at that one bad site on my phone, so, okay, I'll, I'll just take that app off my phone. Well, that's all well and good except for you know darn well the password. So you really haven't made it a graveyard. You've just made it one more step to find the evil. Well, here he, he takes them and makes them graveyard. Look then what else he does in verse 7. He tears down the ritual booths of the perverted persons that were in the house of the Lord where the woman wove hangings for the wooden images. They were uh, having prostitution inside the temple. That's how bad it got in here. Prostitution. And he brought all the priests from the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had burned these incense all the way up and down Israel. That's what he's saying there. He broke down the high places which were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city. Nevertheless, the priests of the high places didn't come up to the altar of the Lord in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread. They were really among their brethren. They were really just off base. Look what else he did. He defiled Topheth which is in the valley of the son of Hinnon, that no man might take his son or daughter pass through the fire to Molech. He made that a graveyard. He made it dead. So nobody would go there. He got at the root of the problem. That's what this writer is telling you. He didn't just put a Band-Aid on it. He got the root of the problem and he eradicated it. And he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. They were worshiping through horses. This is how bad it got. 
uh, by the chamber, etc., of the officer, and he burned the chariots of sun with fire. The altars were on the roof, upper chamber of Ahaz, which the king of Judah had made, and the altars which Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of the Lord. The king broke down and pulverized there, threw their dust in the brook Kidron. Then the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem. This is fascinating, which were on the south of the Mount of Corruption, which, look at this, Solomon. Folks, we're in 600 B.C. The divided kingdom happened in 931 B.C. Solomon had done this 300 plus years earlier. Are you catching it? What he's saying here is he took, tried to figure out what all the fathers had done, all the kings had done, and he went around there and he tried to wipe it out. All the things that went against God, he tried to wipe it out. And here he went east of the river where Solomon, king of Israel, had been, uh, built Ashtoreth. Why did he do it, by the way? Because he had 700 wives and some of his pagan wives convinced him to build these. And he said, listen to this, this is important. He said, oh, okay, well, as long as I'm worshiping the one true and living God, it won't hurt to worship some others. And God never calls us to that. And you say to yourself, well, I only worship one God. Oh, really? Hmm. Just think what this pandemic has done. Doesn't it, hasn't it made you come face to face with yourself? Hasn't it in some ways made it come face to face with yourself? What you can live with and what you can't live without or, or whatever. What you can live with, what you can't live with. What you can live without, what you can't live without. You understand what I'm saying? It's had you come face to face with yourself. And I don't know about you, but I know that there are some idols in my life. Right? If you're honest with yourself, us Americans are good at building idols. And we say they're not idols, but they are idols and they compete with the Lord. And here, what... The Lord's telling us through Josiah is get rid of those. No, you can, you can engage in hobbies and those sorts of things with the right attitude. It's when those hobbies possess you. It's when your money possesses you. It's when your comfort possesses you. It's when your house possesses you. It's when your cars possess you. It's when your career possesses you. And you know the difference if you're honest. And if you're honest about that, see, what the Lord is saying here, not that you necessarily have to go quit your job or break up with your, you know, fiancé or whatever, uh, but what he's saying is get a right perspective. He's calling us as radical people, radical. See, all of us are radical. It's normal to be radical. He's saying he wants you to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you think to yourself, well, man, I must muster up all that heart, soul, mind, and strength to love him with. He'll, by his life and grace and Holy Spirit, even give you the grace to love him back. But here, we must yield to him. When he's saying, get those things out, have a right perspective with those things, a lot of times, you know what we say? Yeah, right, Lord. Everybody has a second home in Boulder or wherever. <laughs> oh, I should. But anyway... You get it? So he, he, he gets rid of that. And then look down in verse 15. Moreover, the altar that was at Bethel. So now, do you catch what happened? See, he's a Judah king, a southern king. He started in the southern kingdom. And he did reforms there. But he's concerned even with the remnant of people who are left in the northern kingdom. That's Bethel. He's concerned with them because, remember, they've been ripped out and uh, taken to Assyria, but there is still some left. He was even concerned about those people, and so he goes up there and tries to clean that up. The altar and the high place that he broke down. He burned the wooden image. As Josiah turned, he saw the tombs, and he sent and took the bones out of the tombs, burned them on the altar, and defiled it according to the word of the Lord, which the man of God proclaimed, who proclaimed these words. Then he said, what if, uh, is that a gravestone is that I see? What gravestone is that I see? And you're all saying to yourself, why is he reading about that? Why is he talking fast right now? Why, what's so important about that? Because 300 years earlier, in 1 Kings 13, it, would pro it was prophesied that a a king named Josiah would burn down that altar 300 years earlier, which tells you and tells me, folks, now pay attention right here, <laughs> 
that God's word comes to pass. And you and I and we think this kind of thought. When the Lord tells us something and it doesn't happen within two days, we're like, man, Lord, what are you jamming me up for? That's how we say it, right? Like we're the center of the universe. What are you jamming me up for, Lord? I mean, me. Lord, me. I serve you. I do stuff for you. I, I even taught youth group for four years, Lord. That's a joke too. But anyway, right? I mean, I do these things, Lord. Why, why are you jamming me up? And we might even, oh, it's been two weeks. It's been two months. It's been two years. Here it was 300 years. But it came to pass. It came to pass. The word of the Lord is powerful. It will come to pass. It's the only thing that you can count on in this world. So the men of the city told him, look at this, it's the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and proclaimed those things which you have done against the altar of Bethel. And he said, let them alone, let no one move his bones. So they let the bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came from Samaria. Now Josiah also took away shrines of the high places that were in Samaria. And he did to them according to all the deeds that he'd done in Bethel. He executed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned men's bones on them. And then the king commanded all the people saying, keep the Passover to the Lord your God. Guess what? There's another one, element of revival. Worship God's way. Worship God's way. I know, you know, when I say this, uh, some of you might even email me or come up to me afterwards and say, well, this one song doesn't do this. But even in our worship, what? Our worship sometimes can be man-focused instead of God-focused. We're to be singing songs and psalms and hymns to each other about the Lord. You, anyway. Right? About the Lord. And we are not to forsake assembling together. And we are to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And we are to come together and the first of the, uh, of the week right? Not out of any legalistic way, but so that we can give him our first and our best. And that, here he reinstitutes the Passover. It hadn't been kept that much, so they do it because it gives them an identity, right? It gives them an identity. And oh, by the way, that even reminds me, we need to, and I don't know how we'll handle this one, do communion here soon. We need communion. And to do that and to remember what the Lord has done, it gives us an identity. Communion does that for us. It does lots more, but it, it gives us an identity. We, we celebrate the fact that our Lord and Savior came as a baby and died for us. It's peculiar, but it's necessary to celebrate and to remember and, and, to, and to praise Him for what He's done. So worship in such and such a way. And such a Passover surely had never been held since the day of the judges, who judged Israel. They had had some Passovers, but this one was a big to-do. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the Passover was held. Moreover, 24, he put away those who consulted mediums and spiritists, the household uh, gods and idols, all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah, that he might perform the words of the law. Now before him, verse 25, there was no king like him and turned to the Lord with all his heart, all his soul, all his might, according to the law, nor after him did any arise like him. Here, here's the problem. You see, this book, or this part of the book is intimately linked with the book of Jeremiah. We've moved now out of the book of Isaiah, although we're going to go back to it and we're going to finish it. But this, this part of the book is linked with Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah 7.4, uh, it says that despite all these reforms, despite the revival in Josiah's heart, it didn't take root in the people of God. It didn't take root in the people of God. There's another lesson for us, right? Let's be warned. Today is the day of salvation. We're not just playing church, are we? Would you just want to play church? Come to a Wednesday night service, check it off. Come to a Sunday service, check it off. Give some money in the box, check that off. You know, serve on some committee and complain with people, check that off. Uh, what, would you want to do that and just all those years, just do that and do that and just not have your heart be worshiping the Lord? What a drag. What, what a drag. 
Here he didn't take root. Nevertheless, 26, the Lord didn't turn from the fierceness of his great wrath, which his anger was aroused against Judah because all the provocation with which Manasseh had provoked him. Remember that? It's important. Manasseh's, what was talking to my sister here before the service. I bet you had forgotten, or maybe you hadn't, but I'd forgotten that Manasseh repented at the end of his life. We read it. And yet, the consequences of his sin just reverberated even down to this generation. And the Lord, it was, he, he was provoked. And the Lord said, verse 27, I'm going to remove Judah from my sight as I have removed Israel and cast off this city, Jerusalem, which I have chosen, and the house of which uh, I said, my name shall be there. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went to the aid of the king of Assyria. You need to know right now, There are these main players on the stage. Egypt, I'm doing it in my math, Assyria, and Babylon. Those are the main players. And they really don't care much about the land of Israel or Judah, except for one reason. It helps them dominate the world. And so there's tug uh, tug of war for this little country because it's in the middle of these fighters or these armies. Get it? Well, here, uh, uh, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went to the aid of the king of Assyria to the river Euphrates, and Josiah, king of Judah, they were aligned with Babylon. They liked Babylon at this time. They thought they could help them. They went against them, and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo. He killed him when he confronted him. And then his servants moved his body in a chariot from Megiddo, brought him to Jerusalem, buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, appointed him and made him king in his father's place. That's kind of interesting because he was the youngest son. He wasn't the oldest. And yet he was appointed. And he was 23 years old when he became king and he reigned three months. His mother's name was whatever her name was, daughter of Jeremiah of Libna, not the same, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. Now Pharaoh Necho put him in prison at Riblah in the land of Hamath that he might not reign in Jerusalem. He posed on the land a tribute of a hundred talents of silver. Then Pharaoh Necho made Eliakim, the son of Josiah, king in the place of his father Josiah, and chased his name to Jehoiakim. And Pharaoh took Jehoahaz and took Jehoahaz and... Uh, and uh, sorry, uh, went to Egypt, and he died there. So look at this. We're coming into this guy named Jehoiakim. I've just run you through the son of Josiah, Jehoahaz, who reigned only three months. And then this guy, Jehoiakim, reigns in Judah, and he gets important. Here's why he gets important. I'm going to read you a couple things. He reigned, uh, was placed on the throne really by Pharaoh and reigned 11 years. Listen to this, though. After three years, he was subdued by Babylon. You can read about that in the first chapter of Daniel and served the king of Babylon for three years. And then he revolted. And the king of Babylon came and bound him in chains. Listen to this. And carried him to Babylon. But he died or was killed before he could leave the city. And he received a burial like a donkey, dragged away and thrown outside the gates of Jerusalem. And you read that in the book of Jeremiah. You see how it's linked? Okay, I got a point. Everybody hang on. Just hang on for a minute. You're so quiet. Or maybe I'm used to preaching to nobody in the audience. (laughs) He was conceited, hard-hearted, wicked, the exact opposite of his father Josiah. He repeatedly, listen to this, this one repeatedly tried to kill the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 26 and 36. That's who this guy is. So check this out as we close here real quickly. Jehoiakim, verse 35, gave the silver and gold to Pharaoh, but he taxed the land to give money according to the command of Pharaoh. He exacted the silver, gold from the people of the land, from everyone according to his assessment, to give it to Pharaoh Necho. Now Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name uh, was Zebudah, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all uh, according to all that his fathers had done. You got that? Now here, I want you to just catch this and we'll wind up here in a minute. In chapter 24, we now have arrived at 605 BC. See, 
If you don't know the next three chapters of your Bible, you're going to have a hard time with every one of the prophets, every single prophet. When you start to read the prophets, you're going to go, what? I I don't get it. Why is this just out of the blue? By the way, folks, just so you know, the Bible isn't in chronological order. So really, when you're reading Kara's way, you're really reading my way. (laughs) Because it's not in chronological order. But oh well. Uh, Who's counting? (laughs) And so here's the point. In the days, chapter 24, 605 BC, there's this guy named Nebuchadnezzar. He's concerned about Judah because of its strategic position in relation to the empires of Egypt and Assyria. I told you that. And he came up, and Jehoiakim became his vassal. And he turned and rebelled against him, and the Lord sent, look, these raiding bands. Look, raiders, Oakland raiders. He used to love the raiders. Raiding bands of Chaldeans, bands of Syrians, Moabites. He sent them against Judah to destroy, according to the word. Surely at the command of the Lord this came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh. This is so important. This is 605 B.C., and also because of the innocent blood. Now, the rest of the acts of Jehoiakim, right? Uh, verse 5, and all that he did, they're not written in the book of, aren't they written in the book of the Chronicles? So Jehoiakim rested with his fathers. His son reigned in his place, and the king of Egypt didn't come out of his land anymore, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the book of Egypt to the river. Now, Jehoiachin now, 18 years old, becomes king, reigns in Jerusalem. Verse 8, three months. Mother's name, Nashtua, or whatever, Nahashta, the daughter etc. And he did evil in the sight according to all that his father had done. And at that time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, come up against Jerusalem, and the city is besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon comes against the city. This is the second wave. You should write that in your Bible or in your notes. This is the second wave. This is in 597 BC. And the reason you should write that in there is because uh, this event is talked about in Jeremiah 22. Daniel was taken in the first wave, 605 B.C. Ezekiel is taken in the second wave. So check it out. Is God got the bases covered or what? During the time of the Babylonian captivity, he's got a major prophet in Judah, Jeremiah, but he's also got a prophet in Babylon, as an exile himself, Ezekiel. You see it? That's important for your study. And here, the Babylonians come right up there, and this king leads him in surrender, or leads them in surrender. Look at this, verse 12. King of Judah, Jehoiakim, his mother, his servants, his princes, officers, go out to the king of Babylon, and the king of Babylon, in the eighth year of his reign, took him prisoner. And he carried out from there all the treasures of the house, takes out all the treasures, verse 14, carries into captivity all the captains, the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, none remained except the poorest people of the land. Verse 15, and he carried Jehoiakim captive to Babylon, then king's mother, the king's wives. Then, look, 16, all the valiant men, 7,000 craftsmen, smith, all them, and fit for war. These the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon. He took the cream of the crop. You see that? Verse 17, then the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiakim's uncle, king in his place, changed his name to Zedekiah. And Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. By the way, all these kings are in and out of Jeremiah. Go read it. And his mother's name was Hamatel, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. Verse 9, he did evil in the sight according to all that Jehoiakim had done, for because of the anger of the Lord, this happened in Jerusalem. And he finally cast him out from his presence. Then Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. So now comes the third wave. I'm trying to get you history taught so you'll know your Bible. And now comes the third wave. Oh, you're going to rebel against me, Nebuchadnezzar says? Here we come again. And he comes back down to the city, third wave. He comes back down to the city, and look what it says he did. They built verse, I don't know what verse, two. No, verse one. They built a siege wall against the city, and it's besieged until the 11th year. So for two years, he sieged the city, and he starved it to death, starved the people. It says in Jeremiah that they had to eat, their families had to eat families. They were so starving. 
There was no food for the people of the land. Lamentations 4, 9 and 10 talks about it too. There's another book that's all centered around these chapters. Then the city wall was broken and the men of war fled. Look down there and the king went, I'm skipping, and the king went by way of the plain, verse 5. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and they overtook him. Oh my gosh, I've been trying to get you to this. They overtook him in the plains of Jericho. You remember when Joshua first came into the promised land? What did they conquer first? Jericho. And now it's come full circle. Now the king has fallen in Jericho, and they overtook him there, and their army was scattered, and they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, pronounced judgment on him. Then they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah. They killed his sons. Look, the last image that they wanted the king to have was his family being slaughtered. Then they put out his eyes. With bronze fetters, took him to Babylon. All right. I would, have, I would have stopped, but we're so close. Hang with me. I know there's young people in here. Young people, blame me. I'm sorry. But look, in the fifth month, look at this. Verse 9, Nebuchadnezzar comes down. He burns the house of the Lord. This actually took place on August 14th, 586 B.C. 586 B.C. This is the last wave. And the king's house, that is all the houses of the great, he burned with fire. The army of the Chaldeans were with the captains, broke down the walls of Jerusalem. That's important. Later in the Bible, the walls go down. Nebuchadnezzar carried away captives, the rest of the people. But the verse 13, or 12, the guard, captain of the guard left some of the poor as vine dressers and farmers so it wouldn't go to wilderness. He took away the bronze pillars, major things out of the temple, you could read about that. Uh, verse 18, the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, the second priest, the three doorkeepers, king's close associates, the chief recruiting officer who mustered the people of the land. You see it? Verse 20, so Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, took these and brought them to the king of Babylon. Then the king of Babylon struck them and put them to death at Riblah in the hand of Amoth. Thus Judah was carried away captive from its own land. You're reading it and you're going, man, I don't know, maybe some of you, I don't really like history. Well, listen, if you know this history, the Bible's going to go like this to you. This is it for one third of the Bible. This important piece of information or this history. Well, Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, governor, was made governor. Okay? And some say that he was a friend of uh, Jeremiah, this Gedaliah. He was made a governor. Uh, now, when all the captains of the armies, they and their men, heard that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah govern, they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Ishmael, the son of Nathan, this guy, the son of Caria, etc., etc., they and their man, and Gedaliah took an oath before them and their man and said to them, look at what he said. This is why they get mad at him. He said, don't be afraid of the servants of the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon. Can you imagine somebody who's nationalistic listening to that? And yet we know that these words were from the Lord because of the prophecies that are laid out in Jeremiah, that they were just to pursue a quiet life in Babylon as God dealt with the nation. Why did God deal for the nation in Babylon? Why, uh, what is, why did he require 70 years from them in Babylon? The Bible tells us in different places because they forsook uh, the years of jubilee and the years of uh, six years of planting, seventh year of rest, and they did it for so long, right? And he required uh, these 70 years from them. He required uh, that back from them, and we can talk about that at another time. But anyway, but these nationalistic guys, Ishmael, they're like, wait a minute, I don't like that. So they came with 10 men and they killed Gedaliah as well as Chaldeans, and all the people, small and great, and the captains of the army rose, went to Egypt, and they were afraid of the Chaldeans. And it came to pass in the 37th year of the captivity. This, this is so beautiful. This is why I'm so glad you hung on. If you'll just listen to this, I'm so glad you hung on. I, I get it. It's long. But come on, we've been out for two months. <clears throat> but look, we've gone now from the death of King David... The death of King David over all these past months to the exile of his people. And when you look at this, 
it's almost, it, it is, it's, it's, it's like humanly, there's, there's, there's no hope here. Everything that the Lord had prescribed, they didn't do, and just a few of them did, and they just declined to the point where they were wiped out. Northern kingdom, now southern kingdom, northern kingdom, never to be found again. And then, look, look, you ever, and then just out of this crusty, fiery, barren desert land, look, watch, watch, uh, just a little bud springs up in the middle of hope and life. Here it comes. You ready? So in the 37th year of the captivity of Joachim, guess what the writer calls him? He calls him it twice here in this sentence, king of Judah. <laughs> You're saying, well, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that you know this. In 2 Samuel 7, God made an everlasting covenant with the house of David that somebody would sit on the throne of Judah forever, right? And here, out of this bleakness, this darkness, this barrenness, just a little sprig of life comes up. He says, well, you know Jehoiakim, who wasn't even a particularly good king? He's from the house of Judah. And guess what? Look, look. He's still alive. There's hope. There's hope. And then uh, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, next of kin to Nebuchadnezzar, releases him from prison. He speaks kindly to him, gives him a more prominent seat than those. And so Jehoiakim changed from his prison garments, and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. And as for his provisions, there was a regular ration given him by the king, a portion for each day all the days of his life. You see it? There's, this, there's just this sliver of hope. And you should be jumping up and down, and I should be jumping up and down because the rest of the Bible says there's a proclamation given by a king named Cyrus in 538 B.C. that the Jews could actually return to their land and build Jerusalem and the temple. That's going to be in 2 Chronicles 36. And the book of Ezra opens up and tells us about this proclamation, Ezra 1. And you say to yourself, why is this guy getting... So excited up there. I'm getting so excited because this is called First Kings. This is called Second Kings. The first coming of Jesus Christ, in a sense, was Third Kings. And when Jesus Christ comes back again to the earth to rule and reign, that's Fourth Kings. In other words, what they're telling you here in this really kind of Giveaway, you just kind of want to finish the chapter so you can check it off on your daily open Bible thing. And yet here, look, there's this spring of hope. And what he's saying is, I didn't forget you. Even though it's gotten this bad and this awful and you've been judged, I'm going to provide, the Lord says, a way out. And his name is Jesus. When you go back in Matthew 1, some of these guys are in there in his genealogy. There's only hope in Jesus. You know that. I'm preaching to the choir. Are you singing? So come on up. Uh, but I just want you to say as we sing together, and oh, by the way, was that heartfelt singing or what? If you were sitting up here, you could hear it. I mean, you could just hear it. You guys belting out. There's hope in Jesus. Look, look, look. Two months. You're like, what, what's going on here, Lord? See, this story tells us even now, even if we're impatient after two months, there's hope. It's Him. And I think, don't you think, as we take this time to realign our priorities, what better time, is there any better time? I don't think there's been a better time. I mean, maybe 9-11, but has there been a better time than this to shine out to the hurting world the gospel of Jesus Christ? People are begging to hear it. If you say, how 
boy, how do I witness to people now? You aren't paying attention. All you have to do is say, oh, you're scared? Tell me why you're scared. Oh, you're anxious? Tell me why you're anxious. And then let them talk. And then you can say something like this. Well, I have peace. And guess what they're going to ask you? Why? <laughs> why? See, 2 Kings tells us that. There's hope. There's a future. We know who we are in Christ. And I say, let's all of us say, let's give them the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time and I thank you for your word. It's eternal. So powerful, Lord. And I pray that as we go out this week, you would give us many opportunities to share the gospel with a hurting and dark world. One, a world that's searching and looking for answers. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.